You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Welcome to the last and final panel. We have another conversation after this, but as far as panel is concerned, this is uh, the last one. And of course, uh, we deliberately intended it to be the most colorful panel. Here, uh, we have on the panel, Parmesh uh, Sahani, who is uh, head of Godrich Culture Lab, author of Gay Bombay, and editor-at-large of Verb magazine, which is India's leading, is it the leading fashion and luxury? The only? Only fashion, fashion and luxury and magazine, worth reading. <laughs> luxury magazine of India. Yeah. Uh, Parmesh uh, has done the entire mediascape. He's been in television, he's been online, he's been in print media, and uh, of course he loves to travel a lot. He travels in India and outside India, collecting art and looking for art, and he says also looking for true love. So Parmesh Sahani, yeah. could you please welcome Parmesh Sahani to this panel? To my right, Kishwar Desai, um, who's been in television for over 20 years, uh, face recognized all over uh, by audiences in India. But she's now even more recognized because of her writing. Her first novel, Witness at Night, won the Kosa Award for the best first novel in 2010. And she's just signed up with Simon & Schuster for three more novels, and it's a trilogy. At the center of this trilogy is a Punjabi social worker who is, uh, as Kishwa says, who thrives in turmoil. Yeah, so we'll get to hear a little bit more about uh, uh, Kishwa and her work. And, at, and can, we, can we welcome Kishwa? And our third panelist is uh, Dr. Rashmi Poddar, who's director of Gyan Prabha. It's a cultural think tank, and they have a lovely space in Mumbai and in Varanasi. And uh, uh, she got a doctorate in, uh, from Mumbai University. But the interesting thing about her getting the doctorate was then the Mumbai University asked her to go ahead and curate a postgraduate course in aesthetics. We which she herself offers from Gyan Prabha and is offering it for the last 14 years. Um, she's been an associate editor of MARG and she's been uh, a chair of the India Foundation for the Arts and perhaps Gyan Prabha and the IFA are uh, perhaps the only two institutions or one of the very few institutions in India which encourage uh, experimentation in the arts. Uh, welcome uh, Rashmi to this panel. So our topic, crisis and culture, does creativity thrive on turmoil? A lot of operative words there, crisis. What sort of crisis? Personal, national, global? Uh, creativity, what sort of creativity? Uh, creativity in the arts, science and innovation, business creativity, you know, the whole range. And of course, let's not forget the word thrive. I know the panelists are going to you know, talk about culture thriving in turmoil. Again, what sort of turmoil? Internal, external. So uh, let's have a go at this discussion, which is certainly going to be a discussion with the huge range of uh, 
unanswered questions and a huge range of answers. Uh, and I, I know that all of you would have your own answers to this, so we'll get to you also. But first of all, Parmesh. And we should, of course, also problematize does and on, like good academics, we should problematize everything. But I'm going to start with actually talking about some of the things um, that I've heard in the past few sessions linked to, you know, linked to some of the questions that I've had in my mind. And I've actually been a little uncomfortable with, there seems to be this view, and it's a very central kind of view, right? Right from the business panel to the film to the last one to, to even the opening panel, there seems to be this, this, this perspective that, um, you know, whether it was does India have a vision or not, first of all, what is a vision? And who, you know, who gives it to us? Who decides that? Uh, moving on to the, I mean, you know, in all of them, there seems to be this premise that there is some central authority uh, which does this granting or which does this framing, and then there is everyone who kind of falls in line. And I want to question that right at the beginning. So, you know, let's keep this very provocative, this panel. So, I'm going to question that at the beginning. And I think back about a friend of mine who's at MIT, his name is Shiva. And he does very interesting research. He's a biologist, but he also researches culture. And we were talking recently about, about cells. And he said, you know what's really interesting about the cell is that the nucleus really doesn't matter because it's the periphery which actually decides what to bring in and what to take out. So, you know, the nucleus really doesn't make any decisions. The nucleus just exists. And, you know, I want to use that, that lens to look at cities, to look at cultures in the same way, and certainly to look at, at Bombay, you know, in, in, in that way. So if you look at this lens of, you know, the, the, new, the center not being so important, the periphery being really important, and if you look at what's happening all around us, you realize, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to be here, and I'm very excited when I travel, and I'm most excited actually when I go to cities from the global south. So, you know, I mean, I think there's great excitement and there's great creativity coming out of, not as in places that were seen as the centers, so London, sorry Julia, uh, or New York, or anywhere else. But I think a lot of the excitement is coming out of places like Lagos, or, 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 or Rio, or um, you know, uh, cities in South Africa, whether it's Cape Town or Joburg, certainly Mumbai, Bombay, whatever you want to call it, and let's call it everything. Um, and you know, so that's my, that's my first uh, kind of provocation, that perhaps uh, you know, we have to look at, uh, at creativity coming out from, from you know, what, we would, what we thought of as peripheries, and these are no longer peripheries, they're the new centers, and they're not even the new centers, it's just what if we think of the world as a, as a, you know, as a, as a network of nodes, all of which are as important or less important than each other. And if we take the same analogy to within cities as well, if we look, you know, of course cities have institutions, so there are, you know, I mean, in, in, in Bombay there would be official, there would be official museums, there would be places like the NCPA, there would be institutional, there's an institutional framework of culture, or culture with a capital C, I suppose, which is, you know, high, high culture, opera, theater, etc. Um, that really doesn't interest me, because all cities have that. What I'm again interested in is, is, is the culture that, you know, with, with the small C in the Raymond Williams sense, so culture that happens in daily life, culture that happens at the margins, culture that happens uh, on the edge. And, uh, the edge is interesting for me again because it's you know it's at the edge that the most interesting debates are held about you know what belongs what doesn't belong what is right what is wrong uh, who has a right to a certain kind of imagination and who doesn't and if you look at cities like 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 Bombay for example the most exciting and amazing work is happening at the edge the edge is also incidentally where there's a lot of turmoil and it's certainly the space where creativity thrives if you look again if you look at our amazing city right um, 
There are, there are old mills which are being repurposed into amazing creative spaces. There are, there are slums which are locations for wonderful art projects. Um, you know, Bombay is the center of certain cultural industries like Bollywood. But you know, last weekend there was something called NH7, which is the biggest non-Bollywood alternative music festival that was held in Pune that had thousands and thousands of people from all over India attending it. If you, you know, anywhere you look, whether in, you know, in, the, in the visual arts, in, 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 in the audio arts, uh, in literature, in writing, and other kinds of experimentation. All the cool stuff that's happening is happening on the edge. It's happening uh, on the boundary. It's happening where people are questioning, you know, uh, what is permissible and what is not. Certainly, a lot of the exciting research is happening on the edge. My own, my own research on Gay Bombay, uh, you know, I mean, the question that, I, that came up with was, uh, you know, I started by asking the question of what does it mean uh, to be gay in India? But I actually realized that my question was, what does it mean to be gay and Indian? And it's, it's different because what was being negotiated actually was the stability of the very idea of Indianness and what is this thing called Indianness. So I think, you know, all these discussions don't happen at the center. They happen at the edge. And the last point I want to leave all of us with, and maybe we can all argue about it, and I hope all of you don't agree with me because it'll be very boring otherwise, um, is that, you know, you know when, we, when we look at the world as a network of peripheries, uh, we, we want to look at alternative funding models. We want to look at, uh, and again, here's again where I'm actually very uncomfortable with people who lament. You know, a lot of people say, Oh, well, you know, other parts of the world have creative industries policies and they have creative industries ministries and they're all building new centers and attracting creative industries uh, for culture. And all that is fine. And maybe this is a case of sour grapes because we don't have any of that in India. But I want to argue that we don't need that kind of central intervention, that kind of central institution building. Because if it was, then Singapore and Abu Dhabi would be the most fertile creative place in the world. And they aren't right now, right? All the exciting stuff is still coming out of places like Bombay, Lagos, Rio. Um, Rio is an, is an interesting model because there's, you know, there's, an, there's, there's juxtaposition of state and creative individuals in, in, in meaningful ways. But you know, let's not talk about that now. I just want to leave you with this fact that maybe we need to look at alternative models. And uh, we need to look at models that are not so much, you know, we'll talk about models later as well. But again, not in the sense of, of uh, you know, this is how things should be done. But models are that come out of emergence. If I look at how some of the creative arts or some of the most creative things are, are happening and being funded out of Bombay, it's, you know, things that have to happen are happening. Academic centers are being built. You know, uh, design, uh, come, uh, come architecture labs where cool art and conversations happen are, being, are coming about. And, you know, people find funding, whether it's through, you know, rich benefactors, whether it's through corporations who want to get in, whether it's through, you know, Jugar or micropayments or whatever, people find it. So I think more than like looking at, you know, uh, you know the funding aspect or looking at some kind of top-down uh, template that we want to put onto a city and to put onto creativity and I would certainly argue put onto our lives, uh, we should look at emergence and alternatives as a lens. So I'm going to stop here, but I hope we'll have lots of, uh, I hope that we won't be in agreement and we'll have a, like, a fruitful and meaningful discussion. Thanks, Parmesh. Kishwan? Okay, so I don't agree with you <laughs> to begin with. Um, uh, no, there are some points I think uh, which are extremely valid 
which you have made, uh, which I think India almost has a copyright on Jugaad, which we all understand, which means putting together a, a, you know, completely different things and making something else out of it and managing to get ahead with very little. I agree with you there because we, we do manage to do that and that shows actually a sense of creativity within us, which is latent within us. But I also want to say that you know, uh, the, the topic which says, does creativity thrive on turmoil? I think whereas it can have its origin in that turmoil which takes place, which could be either personal or as you mentioned, it could be national or it could be international, there could be turmoil happening. It does not immediately, that's where I disagree with you, that it does not, while it might evoke some ideas within us, uh, which I, incidentally I want to say that these ideas could be, uh, if they're personal, very good for your publicist because if you have a personal turmoil within you, hurrah, you know, I mean, your publicist is thrilled because look at this it, this way, that if it was, for example, Vincent Van Gogh, which we were talking about earlier, and, you know, so you can imagine his publicist finds out, he's cut off his ear, and immediately it's on the internet, Dutch artist cuts off ear, and it's all over the internet, and suddenly, you know, you find that his, his uh, paintings are being sold out, and things like that, so that is a personal kind of turmoil, which people have got used to, you in order to sell, in order to market, in order to then get a space in the creative world. Sometimes it may be worth it, sometimes it may not be worth it. In a previous session, we were talking about the importance of marketing in the cinema session, and I think there is, there is a sense where now we do have creativity which is linked to marketing, and then if you have a good story to tell, then the marketing wallas are very happy with you because they think if there's turmoil, your piece of art has come out of this terrible thing which has happened to you, then definitely you're onto a good thing and you could be called creative regardless of whether that is worth anything or not. The second point is, I think good, well, good things can come out of something which has uh, been horribly tumultuous in your life or around you, which you have observed as an artist. You could be a scientist, you could be um, a painter, a writer, whichever field you are. I think these are all very creative fields. And um, if you do look upon these from that point of view, you might be able to I think years later, whereas as I said, the origin could be at that point when that has actually happened around you, but perhaps years later, if you take, for example, the Holocaust, which it took a whole generation before people started making those films, writing those brilliant books, researching, going back, doing works of art, and similarly with partition, with the partition of India. Not enough has yet been written because I think we, uh, and I also want to make this additional point which you said, you know, this whole business of there's so much creativity happening here and things like that. I think on the, on the contrary, there is an east-west divide here where um, issues concerning tumultuous events are concerned. You know, we are not yet within this country, I think, able to confront the realities of some things which happen around us and bring them into the public sphere in a brave and bold way. Sometimes when you do it, you actually do get slammed, you get censored, you get banned, uh, your books may be burnt, your paintings may be torn down. We recently experience this whole thing in, uh, with M.F. Hussein because he took creativity and he actually created the turmoil. So I also want to then come to the next point that sometimes it's not that art 
thrives on turmoil, but sometimes art creates the turmoil. And I think that is a very important uh, distinction that we have to make. And that is happening in an emerging, uh, well, I say, in a newly liberalizing, socially liberalizing uh, country like India. We may be economically liberalized, but I think we still have a long way to go before we can have the social parameters or the liberal parameters, uh, which I now experience because I also live in the UK now. And uh, regardless of what you might say, I do think that London is one of the most culturally thriving place that one can ever live in. And it is very multicultural, and it does have very edgy stuff happening and surprise surprise a lot of it even despite the cuts is happening with government support so I'm not saying uh, that you should always have government support but you could make it better I'm just coming from the International Film Festival of India the 42nd international in and if you're saying creativity thrives on turmoil boy go and see the turmoil there. You will find only chaos, not much creativity. So I think there is, there is a difference which you have to make, that when you, when you, dis, you know, distinguish between all these elements, who is a creative person? I think you also have to then think that ultimately it's imagination. It's sensitivity, it's empathy, it's, um, it's things like this which actually crea create a piece of art. Even, even scientific advances happen because of that, because people are thinking out of the box. They're thinking creatively. So it's not actually uh, turmoil, but it could be a space in which you can actually allow yourself to think. If you're always sitting in a tumultuous and you know, in a situation where you're constantly on the edge, as my dear friend has put it, uh, you might just find that you may not be able to uh, allow yourself to, to actually reflect. Very often, after some event, you will find that there, there are reactions. We, we've had loads of communal um, events happening in this country, and you will find uh, that there are people who will go out and they will make a, a film or write about it. But, you know, I always would like us to sit back and really reflect that were these just subjective films that were being made? Can we consider them great pieces of art? Or would you like to sort of sit back and find a more re reflective space? I mean, this is, this is a provocative uh, statement to make, of course. And then, then judge it, that is this really great works of art? Or do we still need some more time before we can uh, come to this? And so I think uh, my, probably my last point, we could go on like this forever, but I think uh, my last point would probably be that uh, I think that in order to be creative, you need that quiet space. You often need patronage. You often need government patronage. Or even in the past, we've seen uh, great artists. They thrived. They thrived only when, uh, not necessarily when they were cutting off their ears. Of course, uh, he, did, uh, very, he, he created great art. But uh, when they were actually being supported by the state. And I, I don't think we can discount that because those paintings have survived. They're in every museum all over the world. So whilst they may have been depicting turmoil, their ideas may have been originating out of turmoil, they were not necessarily 
in that space. And thus, I would like you to also think about uh, William Shakespeare. I've recently seen this film, I don't know if uh, any one of you have seen it, called Anonymous, where he's supposed to be this, the Earl of Oxford, actually. And of course, the, the film was trashed by every self-respecting critic in the UK who said this is utter nonsense because uh, William Shakespeare was actually just a businessman. There was apparently no turmoil in his life, nothing terribly romantic about him or anything, and yet he was a brilliant creator. Uh, he was able to use his imagination and actually create great works of art. And one last point, because uh, we, were, we were talking about how you know, he was itching for a Bollywood dance a little while ago. So I just want to refer to a film which has just come out called Rockstar. I don't know if any one of you have seen it. Well, Rockstar has this, actually this as its theme, because it says that every artist has to experience great pain in order to uh, create. You know, I mean, you have to go through all these terrible things. So this guy, who's actually just an ordinary bloke trying to become a, a, a rock star, says, okay, I'm going to fall in love. You know, so that is where he experiences his great pain. In, in Bollywood, you know, there is, um, uh, love can become like an illness, you know, like malaria. So there is a word for it, which is called laveria. So I think what this guy ultimately suffers from is this and he manages to then through suffering from such suffering intense suffering from laveria that he actually creates better and better music now i don't know whether for me that film was good enough i mean the thesis behind that film was good enough or whether it was edgy enough uh, in any way but i still would prefer to think that if you give an artist space uh, create an environment for him to work uh, better to actually uh, show his creativity to the fullest extent, uh, he would probably be doing much better than the people who are trying to trying to work around the edges. Thank you. Thanks, Kishwe. Your reference to Anonymous is interesting because a lot of people are saying, a lot of critics are saying that uh, the Nobel Prize, the Swedish poet who won the Nobel Prize this year, uh, Thomas uh, Tranströmer, uh, that his aesthetic is removed from the contemporary world, that there is no sense of turmoil at all, you know. So there are also critics uh, of, of, of writers and artists and, 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 and cultural leaders and, and who are criticized for not having that pain. Uh, over to you, uh, Rashmi. Um, I'm going to first qualify um, a bit of my thesis and put it out. Uh, let me first tell you that I'm a pre-modernist, which means that I really specialized, my specialization is really in aesthetic theories which come in from the second century CE to the 12th century CE, which does not mean that aesthetic theories that didn't exist after that, they do, but there were nothing very significant was added post 12th century CE in our aesthetic theory. So that's my world. So coming into that, coming out from that world, I mean, all of when we're talking about creativity, we've got this wonderful word, and I'm going to use Sanskrit terms because I know there are several Sanskritists here. Simple, pratibha. So what is creativity? Pratibha. It's just a creative genius, and it could be across the board. What happens to this creative genius and the whole process of creativity is fascinating and our texts write about it. And these texts have survived and there were commentaries on those texts by great philosophers like Abhinav Gupta who has, I don't think anybody has been able to add on anything more to what he said in the 11th century from Kashmir. 
And he says that the process of creativity is when a prop and a, something similar to what you said, but just a bit different. And he says that uh, an artist would, he'll watch, but of course, because of his creative genius, imagination, receptivity, all of that is part of Pratibha. And he would then, whenever he wanted to create, he would sort of withdraw and not, and does not necessarily have to be in pain when he is creating because the whole process of creativity is one of disengagement. So he's experienced it all, but he needs to, he does, he objectifies what he has experienced. So it is a subjective experience, but it is also an objectivity to what he's experienced and only that, that you create subsequently can be considered art. And he gives you a whole criteria of what is art. Who creates it? Who experiences it? How is it created? And what is fascinating is that he talks about all the various moods which are really what he calls bhavas and what sort of, um, which is really based on human psychology, predominant ones, ones that come and go transient ones, he calls it, and the feeder, the feeder moods that would help you in then making this one mood poignant. And the artist would then either paint or sing or, and of course, the definition of the artist is one who, is in, who has a working relationship with all the arts. Because if he's, a, if he's an, wants to learn how to sculpt, he must know how to dance. If he knows how to dance, he, if to learn how to dance, he must know music, which really means he must know rhythm. And so, and then all of it is based on literature. So if he doesn't have the poetic instinct in him, he could not be able to create in the first place. So sculpture itself is based on dance. And let me tell you all of this coming, and please, I've qualified this era very clearly as pre-modern, and I prefer to keep it as pre-modern and not bring it into the modern and contemporary because there's so much confusion even within the term modern and contemporary, only because it's just lack of knowledge, not for any other reason. When we say modern, we have to be very clear what we mean by modern. When we say contemporary, we must mean what, what that means, including disciplines, because architecture, modern architecture is different to modern dance, to modern music, to modern art. So not everything is modern, and we must be very clear. So I am very clearly calling it pre-modern, which necessarily which would mean before the British Raj because that's when we have British artists coming here, we got a lot of European influences which have become very strong. So I'm talking about an, an ethos which existed very clear. But the reason I'm bringing this in is because a lot of our students at our center, and we are trying to build, develop an indigenous methodology of understanding Indian art. And I've been working on it, and, which is really what my, my thesis was on. So are, are there paradigms that we can accept without looking at deconstruction, for instance? Without looking at Foucault? Must we only look at Foucault and, and deconstruction Derrida? I mean, you've done that all, but is that the, are those the only methods and paradigms of trying to understand Indian art? Again, pre-modern Indian art to begin with. We'll see what happens to it subsequently. And we have been working on this and looking at the theories, two theories of Rasa and Dhwani. 
The, the, the theory of Dhwani talks about meaning, and it is fascinating that an 8th century grammarian philosopher from Kashmir writes this fascinating theory of Dhwani, and you can see Panofsky writing the same thing in the 20th century. I mean, it, because it's universal. At the end of the day, your, your thought processes do not, I mean, it's just a sharpness of the intellect. It is just beautifully argued, all in the form of dialogue. Nobody tells you what you should do, but it's all in the method of questions and answers and dialogue, which the Indian method is. So we have all of this, so we talk about turmoil there. But I just wanted, before I end, one more observation, which is very vital, and that is patronage. There can be no creativity, could never survive without patronage. Whether patronage, individual, society, community, nation, whether it's the imperial patronage as it was in the time of Akbar, whether or in the time of Lady Impi. I mean, when she, the Lady Impi's album, that's also imperial patronage. And so without that, without the kind of, the, the popular patronage that you're talking about, when you're talking about popular mass, it's people who built, the same people who built the Sanchi Stupa. That's not imperial patronage. So we have to, and I really do believe, that the crisis in India the turmoil in India, which we all faced, because we lost, in, in the field I come from, we lost an entire generation of, of academics who had to go and get jobs at LACMA and MFA and VNA, because they, they, had, they didn't have jobs here. So we would, we've lost that, and if we could retrieve some of, some of that, get them back, and look at all that we can offer, and could we then look at patronage, here and we need support. So we're all starting institutions. I mean, I Thank don't you, like Nishmi. call yeah. it, yeah. but that's okay. what we are. So patronage, yeah. creativity, we'll open, Pradipa. Okay. Thank you. All. Thank you, Nishmi. We'll open it up for questions now. If uh, there's a question there, and we just have about five or seven minutes, so we'll take three or four questions at the most. Hello. Um, my name is Michael Cutts, opportunistic educator. Um, just wanted the panel to reflect on the idea of um, how creativity is used within uh, education in India, um, knowing that obviously to teach creatively you can use all of the different ways that children learn, but using that as a, as a methodology to really kind of underpin uh, the education system, I just wanted to take okay. some thoughts. We'll take all the questions together. Any other questions? You know, I think we've... Uh Everyone gave wonderful expositions and uh, we talked about personal turmoil or in one case kind of in a sense political social turmoil. I think India is passing through a very interesting stage and when I compare what's coming out of Pakistan, what little I'm seeing in terms of music, uh, art, certainly writing in English and I find they are sharply satirical. They are more cutting edge in terms of observation about their society and we have become extremely self-satisfied. Uh, most of what is coming out of here is about identity, as though, you know, after 60 years, we still have to explore identity. <coughs> Sorry. So, uh, okay. when a society is comfortable as we have become, I'm sorry, I'm going to use a very sharp word, smug, then I think art also starts reflecting it. I want their comments on this. Okay, thank you. Any other questions before we come back to the panel? Okay, we'll get back to the panel. So two questions there, creativity in education and India settling down to a sense of complacency and comfort and therefore not having great art. So we'll also take this as your final comments because we're running out of time. So 
you know, just add to whatever yeah, else very, you Yeah, very quickly, that I think um, it depends on where you look, right? I mean, you're, I mean, what we see coming out of Pakistan is a little slice that we are shown. Likewise, a lot of what we see or what, you know, and a lot of what you think might be a smug kind of thing uh, is, is perhaps you're looking in the mainstream. Again, I would argue that there's so many other places to look in contemporary India for what is coming out, whether in literature, whether in uh, music, whether in these very interesting experiments that are playing with, with form, with process, with location. Uh, I actually don't think, I, I think we're, you know, I'm certainly not feeling smug about what's happening. I'm feeling very, very optimistic. The other thing is that a lot of the conversations that are happening, because I don't think of um, art or culture or creativity um, or innovation as something that happens, you know, I don't think of it in an artistic lens. I think of it as a dialectic and I think of it in, as a conversation between what's happening between people in different cities, in different parts of the world. And if you look at, uh, you know, what's happening out of India and out of urban India is that these conversations are happening between here and there. Uh, these places are shifting. So, you know, uh, People uh, from here uh, might be in wonderful conversations with people in other cities and other parts of the world in ways that they may not be in conversation with certain cities in India as well. And I don't look, I don't look at these things as problems. I look at them as, as exciting opportunities. So I wouldn't be smug. I don't want to answer the education question. Um, so. Uh, very quickly, yes, I think we could do with much more creativity in education as somebody who studied in India and whose kids have also studied here. I do think there's a huge lack of uh, creative inputs with our children get here. And uh, we have to look at uh, models abroad, I mean, there's, or even into our own culture and try and sort of change around everything. Uh, regarding the smugness, I also think that, you know, we're not really, they're, 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 again, it's, I agree with um, you completely that it depends on which aspect you're looking at. Certainly some of the government-funded stuff you could, you could look at with uh, a lot of skepticism, but there is a lot of private enterprise going on out there. There are lots of artists who are coming up in different fields. And I, as I said, let's look at the science. Let's look at everything, you know, not just, um, let's look at technology. There's a lot of innovation which is happening, which is very creative, extremely radical, is going to change the world. I am quite sure we're going to have another Nobel Prize with from India quite soon and so I'm not at all I'm not at all pessimistic I think there's a lot happening but we could get on with it you know, not fast enough Rashmi your final comments education I mean that's such a sore topic I was with it with the university and I walked out of the university before I thought it killed me sort of you know it just shows the, the condition of Bombay University which where I was for several years and then you take make a very hard choice that you want to be with the university so that your students can have a sort of have a degree credition or you want to get out of it and do your own thing and then they can be without a degree but they'll but they learn so much more and the whole subject would come alive so education is a very very difficult thing that's happening as far as the as far as the government institutions are concerned. So the, the government institutions, of course, we know. I mean, I think everybody knows how moribund they are. A lot of interesting work is happening outside. So what is, what, and that's, they're going to be the trailblazers, people who are working outside public, I mean, government institutions, whether it's museums or whether it's universities, whether it's art centers, it's all the people who are working outside it. So it's really private, uh, enterprise is private entrepreneurship that's happening outside and they are the ones who are setting the tone and they are the ones who are looking at things globally they're bringing in paradigms and testing it and I think it's going to be finally them 
where all the innovation is going to come in from. Can I just add yeah, something? You've got a burner? Yeah, yes. okay, great. So I just realized I had something to say about education. And I mean, again, if you look at education as, you know, this formal kind of institutional space, perhaps, but there are so many other incredible spaces. I'll give you two. Um, there's a place called Jaga that's coming out of Bangalore. I mean, it's been running out of Bangalore. It's not an educational space in a conventional space. It doesn't have a building. They take unused pieces of land, often like garbage dumps, and they built using high density, low cost, very lightweight, uh, prefab material. They build buildings. So they build three floors, four floors, five floors. It takes 24 hours, 24 to 48 hours to build a four or five story building. And then they often have workshops all kinds of educational workshops, uh, exhibitions, interactions, and then when people say, get out of my land, they go build somewhere else. That's also an extra, that's also an, so is it art? Is it education? Is it activism? You know, it's a new model of learning. They might not grant you a degree, but you'll certainly have a lot of fun and you'll certainly learn a lot of new things, right? The second thing is what we're trying to do at the Goddard India Culture Lab. It's an experimental lab. We're trying to cross-pollinate conversations between artists, academics, business people, policy makers and activists about very broadly what does it mean to be Indian and modern. Again, so if you attend any of our interventions, whether it's a conference, whether it's a salon or etc., we won't give you a degree or diploma, but you'll certainly learn in a very complex, meaningful and abstract way things that you would not learn before. So I think these conversations are happening and perhaps these conversations will are, are, are a precursor to the new kind of models that will emerge out of this part of the world for the future of education. Maybe the way that we've been thinking of it all this while has been wrong. Time's up. We'll bring this panel to a close. But before I close, I just want you to leave, uh, want to leave you with one thought. John Carey's uh, very influential book, What Good Are the Arts? And a quote from him, a work of art is anything that anyone has ever considered a work of art, though it may be a work of art only for that one person. It's not just for those whose blood runs the other way. Uh, thank you to the panel and thanks to all of you. Thank you. Thank you.